Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest received his first Grammy nomination for an arrangement on his new record, The Planets Reimagined. He was nominated in the category Best Arrangement, Instrumental, or Acapella. This guest is a composer, orchestrator, and arranger who has also worked alongside previous guest Carlos Rafael Rivera on The Queen's Gambit and is a frequent orchestrator for Christoph Beck. The composer is Jeremy Levy. Hi, how's it going? Goes well. How about yourself? Pretty good. So, Jeremy, I want to start off by asking you, because uh, we've had previous guests who have also done orchestration work, mm-hmm. um, but I was wondering if you could explain to our audience what the job of an orchestrator is. Sure. It's one of those kind of uh, inside baseball descriptions, if you know what I mean. It's, uh, yeah, it's not really composition. It's not really arranging. Um, it's not really music preparation. It's kind of a little bit of everything. Um, so generally what happens, <clears throat> I'm seeing Mission Christoph back. So I'm working on a project for him right now. Um, the new WandaVision show that's, uh, that's on Disney plus. Um, so I was actually working on that just before we started talking here. Um, so the way it generally kind of goes, um, he'll send me their demo, which is a MIDI file and audio stems, um, directly out of his, he uses Cubase. I think, um, I think that's what they're using. Um, so we got all that stuff from them, from his team. So he'll be the composing. He has a couple additional composers as well, helping out, um, and then they've got the assistants over there helping prep all the audio stems and that sort of stuff. So they said everything, um, in this case, it goes to Joanne K music services, um, who, since we have a budget, they help us out and prepare MIDI sketches, um, from the composer demo. Sometimes if it's a lower budget thing, it's, uh, it's kind of done all in house by myself. It really just kind of depends, you know, per project. But in this case, uh, Joanne Kane, uh, the, the company over there, it's, uh, Joanne K music services, uh, they take the MIDI file and they sketch everything out for us. So we have what actually kind of looks like um, an orchestral score at this point, you know, in notes, <laughs> where it's not just a bunch of uh, <clears throat> unquantized MIDI data and key switches and all sorts of computer gibberish. Uh, so they sent us the sketch. Um, on this show, I'm working with Tim Davies. He's the lead orchestrator. Um, he's also usually Chris's conductor, but uh, we're recording this in Vienna right now due to all the COVID stuff. So uh, he's just uh, just lead conductor, or excuse me, lead orchestrator, and uh, he also helps run the sessions um, over the internet because uh, that's how we're kind of having to do this right now. Um, so after we get the sketches from Joe and Kane, um, then we kind of divvy up amongst our team. It's uh, usually Tim and myself, and then we have a few other people. Um, another friend of ours, Jordan Siegel, helps out. Um, and then Lorenzo Carano, who's another friend of ours, helps out. Um, and Ryan Humphreys as well. So we have a kind of a, an expanding team of people that kind of goes up or down depending on how busy we are. But for the most part, it's usually Tim and me on these things. 
Um, so after we get the sketch from Joanne Kane, um, then we have to actually make up like a complete fully playable score. that's going to go to the orchestra. So at this point we get kind of everything that's sketched out for the computer. Um, and a lot of times things are kind of written in a way to sound good for a computer demo, um, but may not make a lot of sense for an actual violin section. So it's kind of our job to take the, uh, the computer version and make an actual like real musical version that can be played, um, you know, with as little time as possible in rehearsal. So it's, it's really just, Get everything on paper, um, adding all the dynamics, um, figuring out how everything needs to divide up amongst the string section. Um, on these remote sessions as well, there's some, um, a lot of times we, we try to figure out what needs to be striped ahead of time. Um, striping is a term that usually refers to recording a separate, like a section of music separately from the rest. So we might have just the violins record, uh, like let's say some tremolos by themselves so they have the extra mixing control. So a lot of times we kind of sort out ahead of time um, how the recording process is going to go down and then we can. We'll put little score notes um, like on the top left of the page. That way the conductor in Vienna will know ahead of time what to look out for. Um, so that's kind of the general gist of it. Um, it's mostly just like in, in the olden days, we would actually be taking like a piano sketch. You know, the composer would write on piano. It would be recorded and then it would be sent to an orchestrator who would then transcribe the piano and then write or arrange it for the full orchestra. Um, but you're still taking the same music material that's already been written by the composer. So now in the case of computers, it's sort of the same thing, but we get a MIDI file, which is sort of like the, the fully realized, um, you know, demo from the composer. And then we take that and make the full, the full orchestral score. Right. Do you feel like, uh, having worked a lot in, in the field, do you think that that, or all this kind of, uh, experience has helped you as a composer as well? Um, it has, um, I mean, certainly I've worked on so many different projects and so many different genres. Um, I've just become like very familiar in like all types of film music, video game music, TV music, really kind of a little bit of everything. So you kind of see the behind the scenes of how everything is pieced together. Um, so when I do get hired to do writing on my own, I have, you know, I generally know how to figure out ahead of time, you know, what, what the music kind of needs to be to fit the scene. Um, and then on top of that, and how to, you know, put together your demos and how to get your, your orchestral sessions to sound the best as possible with computer synths and all that sort of thing. So I've got my, my rig set up pretty good. And uh, I've learned a lot of tricks just seeing how people do their own demos and their programming. And there's lots of cool little things you kind of pick up as you're going along. For sure. And yeah, you mentioned working in a lot of different genres. Uh, I want to talk a bit more about that in a sec. But when did you first love or I don't know, find out that you you love music or were you playing an instrument at a young age or how yeah you so um i started piano like around four or five um there's actually like pictures of uh, me like playing my, my dad had a uh, like an old world organ um not one of like the fancy ones with like a b3 or anything but just like a you know like a home <laughs> organ uh right. so who'd be playing like guitar and then i'll be sitting on his lap playing organ along with him he's kind of bouncing away on the keys and that sort of stuff. And then they, they put me into piano lessons, I think when I was five. So I started playing piano at a young age, um, got bored with it because I was a kid. And then I started trombone in middle school. And uh, that's really when I kind of like took off more seriously. Um, so I got into playing all sorts of music, playing trombone, doing jazz, Dixieland, classical, you know, and then from there I got into arranging and then full composition kind of in college. And then it kind of expanded from there. Uh, but I mean, the other little things that kind of like really got me into the film music thing, I, I really think we talked about this, or you, you kind of mentioned at the beginning, but the whole Star Wars thing was really like one of the first movies I remember seeing and listening to where, you know, the music is so at the forefront um, and just made such a, a huge impact on me. Um, just watching movies as a kid, 
Um, you know, I was growing up in the uh, the eighties, so I got a lot of those. Obviously, <laughs> the Star uh, the Star Wars movies, and then uh, the E.T. and the Indiana Jones films. All those like classic John Williams scores. All this stuff was just really kind of ingrained in my mind. And then you know, once I started getting computers, and we had the internet. And then you would like I could download MIDI files that people had created, and you kind of can start digging around and poking around, seeing how the music was put together. I didn't have access to the actual full scores at that point, so you know, it was more like yeah, <laughs> a little computer. Uh, Tom Foolery trying to figure out what was being done with all that stuff. So that was that was a a fun time of uh of uh I don't want to put this uh not really knowing what I was doing. I guess you know <laughs> it's all kind of magical when you're when you're a kid. Sure. No, I mean I remember in college. I think I still say this to this day, but one of the best like educations I could have had was just going on the internet, getting you know Hans Zimmer MIDI for Pirates of the yeah. Caribbean, and right. just looking at like oh okay, so the strings i play are generally like way too close to each other and like seeing how something like that is laid out and i mean you know going into being able to download stems for print songs too and just you know being able to study the greats it's, it's so easy nowadays yeah yeah it's it's uh we're pretty fortunate now <laughs> you know on the one side you know we have all the the easy access of uh of streaming music you know which is so incredible for the listener then now once you get on the other side of that as a as a content creator then you start wondering if it's really for the best but <laughs> but you know having it all at your fingertips is uh is super cool for sure and do you have any preferences in musical genre right now or do you feel like um i mean is there really anything that you you haven't touched on at this point <laughs> um like not i mean I've, i feel like i've worked on almost kind of everything um uh trying to think of there i mean so outside of like stuff i've written and worked on then like also as a performer um i've played like trombone on like k-pop sessions and like you know ultra so <laughs> random stuff you get called for so i, I feel like I've, I've gotten pretty well versed in everything then you know before i was really making it full-time as a composer i was playing in wedding bands and you know playing top 40 stuff so you're playing you know, everything basically. So I feel like I've got a, a pretty wide background as far as uh, playing music and then just by playing and then kind of understanding how the elements are put together. And then it's kind of interesting how once you start getting into composition, then as you're playing things, you're listening more as like a composer than as a player sometimes. So it, it kind of all, all feeds into itself. Actually, I remember like there was this one time in college, I was sitting in the orchestra playing trombone and I got yelled at because I was looking at another player's part like during a rest, which is apparently uh, it's like in bad form or bad taste or something. It's considered rude, I guess, which I guess I was not aware of. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I'm very interested in seeing what everybody's doing and hearing. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I just find it funny looking back now as a, I, I kind of could see where I was going as opposed to being a player versus a composer, I think. For sure. I remember in high school, I forgot what piece we were playing in high school orchestra, but I would like peek over at the trumpet section as a violin player because this one player was so loud and just kept blasting right into my ear. Mm. <laughs> so I wanted to like make a little note of like when to dodge, <laughs> dodge that note. Right. Um, that's really cool. So do you feel like you get like equal enjoyment out of every part of, I mean, you're so multi-talented Would the goal be to, you know, focus on composition in the future or do you feel happy just like kind of jumping around and, and having this variety in your life? Um, I enjoy the variety. I mean, the cool thing about being an orchestrator is in general, you get to, you get to work on more projects than if you're just a composer, just because the orchestrator is hired at the very end of the project. So we're coming in for like, if we're lucky the last month, you know, if we're not lucky, it's like a week for, you know, for like 50 minutes of music or something, which is, can get a little hectic. Uh, 
but because of that, uh, I get to be in front of an orchestra a lot, which is you know really cool. Um, so that's kind of the best part about being an orchestrator, and I, I conduct as well when I get the chance. Right. So just being in front of the orchestra or even in the recording booth, um, you know, kind of talking to the players and all that kind of stuff. That's really the part I enjoy the most. And then uh, composing, you know, it's it's uh, in a lot of ways, it's uh, I think a little more stressful. <laughs> than being an orchestrator is because you know when an, as an orchestrator you're hired by the composer and you have a, a direct relationship with the person and everybody kind of understands what the other person is talking about and you know when you get hired as a composer you're not always talking with people that have as in-depth in musical knowledge so you're having to communicate in broader terms you can't just you know directly talk music to music like when you're talking to another composer or musician so it definitely provides uh different challenges you know working with working as a, working as a composer uh but of course on the other hand, it's also, I feel like, a little more uh, satisfying because the end product is really you know, 100% kind of what you've created. And plus, there's a much more of a collaborative relationship with uh, with the director as far as what you're trying to figure out and what you're trying to really make the music come across as. So that part's very enjoyable, but uh, it's, it's definitely uh, it's, it's a little more time consuming. And uh, I, have a, <laughs> I have a family and home still. I have a, my daughter is about to turn four. So I kind of enjoy having the more of like a, a semi nine to five ish schedule working as an orchestrator. <laughs> It's a little easier to manage at this point in my life. So I'm definitely I'm looking forward to doing uh, more composing for media in the future. But uh, it's just one of those things where I kind of allow it to kind of creep into my life when opportunities arise. But I, uh, I try not to be too forceful about trying to make it happen sometimes. For sure. I feel like when anyone tries to, you know, get more gigs or whatever, that's when it all falls apart. <laughs> Yeah. And then also I'm always in, when you're hired as an orchestrator, you know, you're hired in the service of a composer. So you don't want to be the guy that's, you know, there trying to get gigs, <laughs> you know, while you're hired by the composer. It's uh, it's in bad form and nobody likes it. And it's just, you know, nothing, nothing good could come of it. So it's always good to just, you know, you're hired to be what you are, do a great job and, you know, you network and do your things and opportunities come from that. But uh, you can't, you can't get people to hire you to do things unless, you know, <laughs> it's the right time. Yeah, for sure. It's that funny thing of there's a very thin line between I think like trying to manifest something and then yeah, also wanting something so badly that that you just push away any opportunity of it ever being able to happen for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta be. You definitely have to be careful with that. So, how did you get your um your foot in the door when it came to orchestration gigs? Um, so as I mentioned, Tim Davies, who I work with, um, all the time, he was really kind of the first person that got me in. Um, so I came in to LA in 2006. Um, I came out here as part of the Henry Mancini Institute, um, which was the summer program at UCLA, um, which is really no longer in existence in its current form. It's, uh, the name has now been, it's over in, uh, the university of Miami. They do like, it's sort of part of their studio orchestra program there. Um, which is very different than what I was doing, but uh, at UCLA it was uh, it was a summer like a summer scholarship program um, where they would accept like an entire orchestra's worth, and then I think it was I think it was eight and student composers as well, or it was either four or eight. Um, so there was student composers and then you know student orchestra members, and it was sort of like a uh, a cross between like you know we playing like legit classical music, legit film music, and then also sort of like jazz jazz classical pops sort of stuff. So you had like a real interesting mix of stuff where you had string players who know how to improvise. 
and uh, like the all the brass players and sax players would also you know be in a big band as well. So it was this really cool kind of cross section. And I met a lot of players out here that I still work with you know like all the time out here. Um, like I was in the orchestra with uh, the trumpet player Rob Shear, who's you know like kind of the principal number one guy out here now basically. Um, and then I was also in the program with uh, the composer Joe Trapanese, who's now like a super big shot film composer. Um, he's actually a little younger than me, <laughs> but he, you know we were talking about you know kind of steering your path. Uh, he's one of those guys that he caused some big breaks, but he was also super focused in what he wanted to do. And he just, uh, he really hit the ground running when he moved out here. So I'm super proud of him. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. Super good dude too. Um, so I so yeah, so I moved out here. Um, and then I did the program at, um, at UCLA. Um, and then I moved out here at the same time. So, you know, mm-hmm. packed up all my stuff. I was living in Miami at the time. I went to school out there. Um, and then I started, you know, calling people up basically like everybody does. Uh, I, I basically just, uh, I used like any alumni connections from Miami I could. So I contacted all the people that were out here working. Um, there's composer, uh, Vega Margerson, who has a, uh, a trailer music company now. Um, but he was doing some, some composing and other stuff. He kind of brought me on to do a little bit of stuff. He has some music prep and copying, whatever stuff. Um, and I think he, and then also the guitarist, Andrew Sinewick, um, told me to get in touch with Tim. So I went and saw Tim's band. He, has a, he had a big band um, that was playing in Cobra City at the time. That's sort of this like rock and roll Australian big band. He's from, uh, from Australia, I guess, <laughs> as you might imagine from that comment. Uh, but yeah, I met Tim and you know, we chatted up afterwards and I'm also a big band composer. Um, so we kind of hit it off over that stuff. And then he brought me on to start doing some grunt work for him. <laughs> and uh, I just kind of took off from there. We, we just kind of had really bonded from the beginning. And now I pretty much work on all those projects and vice versa. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good relationship we have. Nice. Love to hear that. And then, yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit about some of the music you did because um, you were credited as additional music on both the most recent Star Wars Battlefront games, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually some other ones before that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, all that basically happened around the, the same time. So getting back, this is like another thing that kind of came from the Henry Mancini Institute. Um, so Gordy Hobb, who is a composer for the Star Wars Battlefront games, and he's gone to do, uh, he's did what's the Squadrons game and Fallen Order. He's done like, you know, he's the Star Wars composer right now for all the video games. Um, I feel like he lives in London basically now. <laughs> uh, but I met him at the Mancini Institute. He was, he was alumni of that program as well. And they brought him to be like a... Uh, I'm trying to remember what they called him, but he was basically like a mentor for the week for the student composers. Um, and then we had, a, we had a lot of mutual friends as well. Um, another guy, Kyle Newmaster, um, that I ended up being a roommate with for a little while as well. Um, but I met Kyle years ago and him and Gordy were really good friends. So we all ended up getting drinks and hanging out and then we've been really good friends ever since. And then when Gordy was doing the, the, uh, the star Wars games, you know, as it goes, you get to the end of the project and uh, the cheat sheet is uh, is longer than the time that you have. <laughs> so uh, he called me up and a few other guys to help out and write some digital music and just kind of help help finish it out. So, yeah, I worked on uh, Battlefront 1 and 2, um, writing some music for that. And then he also had me do, um, what was the other one? Um, oh, I can't remember what that do you have it in front of you? But <laughs> I don't have it in front of me right now. It's the uh, my mind is slipping on the other Star Wars game. Oh, wasn't it? Uh, oh, I'm uh, Old Republic, right? Yeah, Old Republic. Yeah, it was one of the. There was like a bunch of those Old Republic games. I can't remember. I think it was the last one of those. There's, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I wrote some music for that as well. Um, and then like before that, I had helped Gordy out like on some of the earlier stuff. Like there was a, um, what was it? There was the Star Wars Connect. I helped doing some music copying on that for him. And like he did like a uh, an Indiana Jones game way back when for I think for the Wii maybe or or one of the Nintendo projects. I can't. I think it was Wii. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've been working with Gordy on a bunch of stuff for a long time. Yeah. So I mean, that must be kind of a dream, but also terrifying too to follow up John Williams, right? Yeah, I mean, it was more so for Gordy, just because obviously it was his gig, and uh, he had a lot of <laughs> pressure to look up to on it. Um, but he gave me a, a really good opportunity to kind of dive into that music, which you know, as we talked to the, talked about at the beginning, it's uh, you know, it's one of my <laughs> biggest influences, you know, as far as learning about film music. So it was really cool to study all the scores and I went back, and you know, I think I I like went through all the scores for episodes one through six. Um, and then at the same time, I also went back and listened to the the Planets by Gustav Holst because that was so influential to Williams. Um, so that's kind of how this eventually, I think that's, we're probably going to kind of get into that topic next, but uh, I just did this big band project that got a Grammy nomination, which was for rearranging the planets for, for jazz. Um, so it was kind of originally where I got the idea for it. Um, I started working on the Star Wars stuff, studied all the, all the whole scores. Um, and then I, I, I think it was that same summer, I went and saw the planets of the Hollywood bowl. And uh, that's kind of when it all kind of came together that <laughs> I thought this might be really cool to adapt uh so yeah right was there any uh reason why you picked jazz or did that just come to you naturally um, I'm, I'm a jazz composer i mean that's where i come from right. um i mean I, I studied you know classical and all that stuff to, to begin with but i was always a, a jazz trombonist um i've been playing a big band since i was like you know in, in sixth grade basically um you know i've been playing in, in my entire professional life i have a, uh i released a big band record in 2012 as well um with alex budman um, was a record called From There to Here, um, which was all my original music. Um, so I was kind of looking for a follow-up jazz big band record just because that's kind of uh, my creative outlet, you know, in a lot of ways. So I was looking for something kind of big to do. I wanted to, I, I kind of figured if I was going to do a second album, you know, I'm going to like spend all this money to make it good. It's got to be something that's, you know, both important to me. And then also I think something that might be able to attract a wider audience. So that was kind of my thinking behind it. Right. It must have been a huge uh amount of time spent and yeah it was uh <laughs> it took a while uh it, the writing was about I, th I think i did it over about nine months um in between other gigs um so you know basically like whenever i had like if i had like a week off or something in between projects i would just kind of put my nose down and just hammer out one of the arrangements and work on it um yeah and then i would start calling rehearsals with my band and you know kind of uh, make sure everything was working right, you know. <laughs> so we well, just like write a movement, rehearse it, then make some little edits and changes. And then you know, I go back to work on another film or something. And then you know, when that would end, I would go pick up, kind of pick up where I left off. So yeah, it was about nine months of writing. Um, so that was 2018, I guess. Um, and then yeah, and then 2019, I did the first performance of it um, in March at the University of Miami. I went back down there. They had me in as a as a guest artist. So I got a premiere with a band down there, which is super cool. Um, it was a lot of fun kind of going back there. And uh, plus I got to hang out with, uh, with Carlos, who you mentioned earlier as well. <laughs> he's down, he's teaching down there. So it was cool. I got to go see his studio and I got to talk to all his kids there and a lot of fun. Uh, it sounds like an amazing environment over there. It's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's changed kind of a lot, even since like when I was there, I was in, I did my master's there in 2002 to 2004. Um, and like since then, they've got like all these brand new buildings and, you know, <laughs> it's like the whole program has just exploded since then. So it's, it's really cool what they're doing down there. Mm -hmm. For sure. 
Uh, well, if it's cool with you, I think we might just go on to the last segment for this podcast. Okay. Um, it's a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic, and you say as much or as little as you want about it. Sure. So the first one here I have is uh, DAW. Oh, um, it depends, kind of. Uh, for orchestration, I mostly use Digital Performer, um, just because it kind of has the best MIDI tools for for manipulating notes around and moving them in between staves. Um, so I... I've- Find it's really helpful for that. Um, and then outside of that, um, I, I also use Cubase and Pro Tools, really it's kind of depending on the circumstance. Um, Pro Tools mostly for mixing. Um, like I, I did all the editing and mixing for my for the Big Band record on Pro Tools. Um, plus, obviously, it's just easier kind of to, to send stuff in between studios if you're working, you know, natively in Pro Tools. You don't have to worry about, you know, exporting the audio and making sure everything lines up at the right place. Um, and then Cubase, I'll use it for sequencing a lot of times, um, just because it's got a lot of cool stuff like with expression maps and really makes it a little easier to handle key switches and all that kind of stuff. For sure. Next one is uh, trombone mic. Trombone mic? Um, huh, um, my favorite is probably the RE20, um, which actually I don't have one. I'm using, this is a, uh, the mic I'm using right now is a Cascade, um, the Fathead 2, um, which is a little cool ribbon mic. Um but it, it's pretty good. This is sort of like my my budget. You know, I didn't have the money at the time for Royer when I was still recording at home. And now I don't actually play them much anymore. So this is the, the kind of mic that I use by default at home now. What about uh, big band uh, libraries? Oh, um, honestly, it's it's kind of a weakness in, <laughs> in that world. Like, I hate to say, like, none of them are really that great. It's really hard to do big band jazz and, and with, like, computer demos. Um, I do like the uh, the sample modeling libraries uh, for trumpet, trombone, and saxophone. I use those a lot. Um, also, if I have to do like quick little like you know like pop horn section things, um, just because they're a little more flexible and you can do falls and like doits and bends and that kind of stuff. So they're kind of a little more, a little bit more responsive in that way. Uh, but they do take a little bit more time than just kind of straight out of the box. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'm I'm kind of fortunate that if I really have to do big band stuff, like I'll call a rehearsal or or I'll go to a friend's house. We sort of we'll stack all the parts. You know, we'll, we'll hire like myself as trombone. Then I'll call like Rob or somebody to play trumpet, and then uh, my friend Alex to play sax, and we we'll you know, record all the parts stacked. So that's kind of uh, <laughs> I guess my answer is to hire a band <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then the last one here is what would be your top three tips for composers uh, to make the orchestration job easier or, or things that you see that, that you wish that composers could correct on their own. Sure. Um, so I mean, there's a lot of things. Um, I'm going to say getting back to the doll thing. Number one is don't use Ableton live. <laughs> and I say this only because I've, I've worked on a few projects and like Ableton has this feature where it can't export MIDI files like you can't export like an entire MIDI, like was it the the type one type of MIDI file where everything is all in one? Instead, like it exports every single track as an individual MIDI file, and then you have to like reassemble it by hand. It's a huge pain. Um, so that's my number one piece of advice. Uh, um, and then outside of that, uh, honestly, I think the best thing you can do when you're sending music to an orchestrator, um, condense stuff down as much as possible, um, so it makes sense. Uh, but try, I would not suggest quantizing anything ahead of time. Um, I personally like to have just like the clean raw file from the composer so I can see exactly what they wrote. Um, and then I'll worry about quantizing and getting it cleaned up myself just because I am I do that a lot more most likely than the composer or the composer's assistant might do. <laughs> so I, I find it's, you know, whatever your area of expertise is, leave it for that person. Um, and then on 
I guess the other thing is it's just always handy to have, you know, stems for, you know, every little thing you might need. So you don't need it like per instrument, but, you know, it's nice to have strings. It's nice to have uh, if there's like a separate stem for like string effects, like for rises and whatever little kind of aleatoric stuff. It's nice to have those separated out. And then, you know, winds and brass and percussion, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then let's see here. The last thing I would say is really just have an idea ahead of time what is going to be recorded live. You know, a lot of times when you're, you do get to orchestration, you know, you're not always going to have a budget to do the full orchestra. Um, so it's good to have a conversation before you start sending files as far as what you're going to be doing and how to prioritize. Um, so like a lot of times, let's say you're working on something and uh, you don't have like the money for like a, a full string section. Like I did this one project where we only had the budget to do violins. So at that point we figure out, okay, how do we, get the best bang for a buck so you know it's like sitting down ahead of time picking out the cues you think would really benefit from having a live string sex, string section or a live violin section um and then you know then the rest of what will sound good with you know with sequence strings so it's just a lot of that kind of stuff of just really kind of planning it out ahead of time um just so you're not like scrambling at the end and trying to figure out you know what should go here what should go there um, and then also with strings is, you know, not overly dividing <laughs> the players. It's really easy to just keep, you know, you keep layering samples until you have like, you know, <laughs> you would need like eight violin parts, which, you know, you don't usually have. <laughs> so, you know, if you have like, if you want to get a nice sound, you need like, you know, eight violins per part per note, you know, to get that nice, <laughs> uh, that nice sound. And then on top of that, if you're, if you're playing high, you really need to have a bigger section. Cause if you have like five violins playing like up at the top of the keyboard, it's just, it sounds really thin and scratchy and, it doesn't sound like the samples that were recorded at Abbey Road. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's just that kind of stuff. We're just really thinking ahead of time of what the actual recording ensemble is going to sound like and what they're going to play. And then just making sure you prioritize. For sure. I did this uh, one job for a composer where it was funny. I was like looking through the session and saw 15 notes maybe in a chord for the mm -hmm. strings and counted up in the sample library how many players that would take. And right. you know, with the Hans Zimmer strings, sixty cello patch, <laughs> right. four notes, it's like easily a couple hundred players. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, the, the other uh, along the same bit of advice. Um, so the other talk you need to have with any composer when you're working with them is knowing um, how much liberty liberty they allow you mm -hmm. um, with your orchestration. You know, some composers they want you to have exactly what is in their demo. You know, um, and then other composers are very comfortable with allowing the orchestrator to sort of make sure they use their, their knowledge of the ensemble of what, you know, how many players you have as far as, as far as balancing out what lines are most needed. Like a lot of times, uh, like if you have like a full 2D section, like you might have, you know, the brass is blaring away, you have the trombones playing pads, you know, it's all super loud and the strings to the demo, it might be doubling some like the midsection, like whole notes just for harmony. Cause it sounds nice in the demo, but in real life, they don't need to be playing. They should be playing like the melody. They should be playing the baseline, maybe like a counter line in the middle, but you know, there's no need for them to just be kind of doubling like the padding. So that stuff just gets thrown out for the most part when I'm orchestrating, unless it's, you know, you're specifically asked to keep it because then it'll be like, it's a separate overdub layer and then it's more time, you know, so it's just, it's time wasted at the studio if you don't really think about these things ahead of time. So I feel like that's kind of the most important thing to really sort out. Well, uh, you killed a hero tech talk. Uh, don't tell the people oh, what else you have going on. Um, yeah, so I'm work like I said, I'm working on um, Chris Beck's WandaVision right now. Um, I think we're just about done actually with that. Um, we're getting ready to go to Vienna again this week. Um, so that's been going really cool. Um, I can't really talk too much about that because there's only been three episodes to air so far. And uh, a lot of the score has not really been heard yet. So 
Um, but yeah, it's an exciting project to be back uh, with Chris on another Marvel project. Um, I also worked with him on the uh, Ant-Man 2, which is really cool. That's one of, I think, my favorite Marvel scores that he did for that. So it's, uh, it's a little different, you know, than the other Marvel movies. Just It's kind of like a spy caper, you know? It's really cool. Um, so, and then you mentioned um, I am nominated for a Grammy for uh, the Planet's record that I did last year. Um, so I'll be finding about that in March. Um, actually, it got delayed from uh, from the end of January from all the COVID stuff in LA right now. So I'm uh, I'm just kind of sitting here waiting right now to find out how it goes. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about uh, to see if uh, the Grammy happens. Which uh, I, I uh, you know I, I would be very pleasantly surprised if it did, but uh, I'm not <laughs> I'm not certainly counting on it. That was a it was a super big honor just to to get the nomination. So. Uh, it's really just nice knowing that, you know, especially in the uh, the category that was in, it's, it's sort of a craft category. So the people that are voting on it are like really kind of your peers and they really, <laughs> they really appreciate the things that, the, you know, the, the people that, come, that get nominated that they create. So it's, it's really cool to see that. Right. Well, I thought it was amazing and uh, wishing you the best of luck. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. Matthew Wong